0: Making sure we stay happy and healthy in our jobs may be the key to increasing our impact. That's what we're discussing today on the podcast. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. On episode 64, we have some great guests today: uh, authors Beth Cantor and Lisa Sherman, uh, and they have just written a book called *The Happy, Healthy Nonprofit: uh, Strategies for Impact Without Burnout*. I love this because at first I was like, "Why is you know uh, why does the sector need a, a book about being healthy? That's what we focus on. We we help our stakeholders. We make sure that nutrition's provided, that you know diseases are cured." why Why focus on our internal, you know, internal health here? Isn't that the work of a doctor? Isn't that the work of, you know, medical experts that should be uh, gauging this? Until I really got into the book and realized that, oh my gosh, if it isn't a sort of directive and something that you pay attention to and work toward inside of, especially uh, a not-for-profit focusing on, uh, you know, fixing the social ill, uh, you won't achieve your mission in the same rate or even at all sometimes if your staff isn't happy and healthy it's a fun conversation and i'm excited to jump into it here we go I'm here with uh, the co-authors of the Happy Healthy Nonprofit, Elisa uh, Sherman and Beth Cantor. How's it going?
1: It's going great. Yes, it really is. Well, I'm
0: excited to have you both here uh, on our podcast today. Can you do a quick intro of yourselves? You're uh, obviously both authors, but give us a little background on what you do, Aliza.
2: Ah, Well, I am an author of many books. I've written 11 books now. This is my 11th. It's my first book writing with... Beth. But I've known Beth since 1995. My background is internet. I started the first woman-owned internet company in 95. I went online for the first time in 87. And I started an organization called Web Girls, Web Girls International, to help women learn about going online from other women. And after that, I've had various Digital marketing companies where I've worked with nonprofits, a lot of different nonprofits, often around women's issues, and also for profit companies. So when I'm not writing books and when I'm not doing digital marketing, I'm living up in Alaska.
0: And Beth, uh, a little bit about your background.
1: Um, sure. So I've worked in the nonprofit sector my entire career, the last 35 years. And about 25 years ago, I was lucky enough to have a front row seat at the creation of the nonprofit tech field. Um, and I was an online uh, trainer for a network of artists called ArtsWire that was based here in New York. And that's probably where I ran into Lisa I first heard of her work. and, um, and so basically being a, a you know right now I'm adjunct professor, I'm a trainer, capacity builder. so my, my role was really to teach nonprofits how to use um, these great tools for activism and social change. And I was early adopter of social media, writing a blog and that kind of leapt into doing trainings and I’ve been really lucky enough to work with thousands of nonprofit professionals and activists. Um, literally around the world, I say on all continents of the world except Antarctica. would appreciate any leads for that, too. I'd love to That'd go be there. awesome. And I served as a visiting scholar of the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, where I wrote my first two books. I haven't written as quite as many as Elisa, um, The Networked Nonprofit and Measuring the network Nonprofit, which are around using networks and data, a topic I love. And, um, and really was thrilled to collaborate with Elisa on this book. It's um, now become kind of a passion project.
0: Yeah. So this book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, you mean you move from, you know, entry into how nonprofits use data, you have a leading blog on that, and social media. How do you then evolve into the world of health? Like, I'm trying to, to change the world, I'm trying to leverage data and technology, and then all of a sudden you write a health
1: well, what I think happened? it was my data nerdness if that's <laughs> a word, but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we've both been in the field a long time and, you know, have been through various forms of burnout, and, but um, a couple of years ago, after losing my dad, um, I went through a bad period of not taking care of myself, and I literally burned out, and that manifested itself in some health issues. And so, um, my doctor suggested that I start to do some walking and get exercise, so I got a Fitbit, and you know what Fitbits generate? Data. data. So. <laughs> you said today's magic word. <laughs> so I started you know, tracking, you know, you, know, you, know, you know about the seductiveness of data, so I saw, wow, well, I'm only working, walking a couple thousand steps a day, I could up this. So ultimately now, after f- almost four years of, of working on this, I walk 15,000 steps a day. And what happened is not only did I lose a lot of weight and my health outcomes improved, but I started feeling great, getting a lot of work done. And of course, if you've read my blog about, um, you know, been writing about walking as work and kind of been an advocate around that. So that, so naturally kind of the topics that we're covering in the Happy Healthy Nonprofit kind of feed right into that. And we're really careful to say in the book that
2: it's, not about wellness per se because we're not doctors. So it's not exactly a health book. It is about well being, which is an aspect of wellness and it's something a little bit more dear to our hearts. We want to talk about being more aware and being more mindful of our bad habits. And for me, my pet topic is technology wellness. And that's how we kind of came to start talking about the topic of self care how we use our technology, the seductiveness, you said that word, and I thought, yeah, the seductiveness of technology just lures us in to the point that we don't realize the impact it's having on our bodies and our brains. So that's a piece of the book, but we wanted to take a holistic view of everything that causes us stress, especially in the nonprofit sector, and then what are the antidotes? And we collectively call that self-care. and And we care and we care being the collective organizational version of self-care so having
1: well-being embedded in the culture of the organization or the network or the group of people working together so it isn't just the onus on the individual person but it's in the environment it's embedded into the culture I love
0: that. And you're so good at like branding the concepts. I was like, of course, self-care, we care. And <laughs> then you have the wellness versus well-being elements that you're both teasing out and these are different things, define them, and then address them. You chose the nonprofit sector, and actually, like the quote in here from Aria Finger, uh, that when you talked with her, the the current uh, CEO of Do Something and good friend of mine. Hi, Aria. I've taken long walks with too. (laughs) She's amazing, but I think she answered the question of why focus on just the nonprofit sector? What is unique about the nonprofit sector? And she talks about the fact that when you combine scarcity of resource plus passion, those are two big ingredients. For burning people out.
1: Yes, absolutely, and as you know, we have <laughs> we we've we interviewed many nonprofit activists and professionals, and, and burnout is rampant in our field because of this scarcity mindset, and also because of this idea that if we're not working twenty hours a day towards this cause, we're not really doing the work, mm-hmm. and we almost feel guilty if we take care of ourselves. Like, we can't. We can't rest until our job is done. Um, And so that's what we want to change. That's the mindset we want to change um, as part of writing this book. Really start that conversation and get people to think about that actually self-care is part of the strategy to getting to social change outcomes.
2: And I think also from the standpoint of the individual, we think when we're passionate about something, we must sacrifice parts of ourselves to show we're so dedicated to the cause. And so we wear sleeplessness as a badge of honor. We talk about how much we're giving up in order to give. And it's sort of a backwards way of thinking. It seems like it's honorable, but ultimately, it's showing a lack of self-worth. It's showing that we don't care enough about ourselves, and we're not replenishing ourselves which then damages our ability to do great work for other people. So it's almost as if we suffer, and we will when we're not taking care of ourselves. Others will suffer too. So it's not as if you're getting onto your mission by not taking care of yourself.
0: So basically this boils down to how many kale smoothies per day? No. <laughs>
1: well, you know, Three. No, kale smoothies are great, and so are massages. Yes. but Yeah, but it's, <laughs> but it's also about... It's a lot of things. We have in the book, it's a more holistic definition of it. Um, So it's the relationship with yourself, which is all the health and wellness, mindfulness. It's the relationship with other people in your life, your family, your friends, and especially relationships that give you energy. There's your relationship with your environment, your workspace, um, getting outside, your relationship with work and money and those are hard to separate you can't it's we really can't and yeah. also can be drivers of this burnout and also the fact that we go into work and spend you know a third of our day in work um there's that environment and then also as, as aliza mentioned in our favorite topic technology wellness our relationship with technology yeah
0: i mean it's definitely a. Kidding, only not kidding, because I think
2: the answer we arrived at there for the record was four-ish. Four smoothies per day and, day, and you're, and you're healthy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not happy at that <laughs> point. But you said the other
0: magic word today, which is burnout, right? This yeah. is what we're about. And if you burn out, you can't do great things. Right. If you burn out, right. you cannot help the causes you're, you're Or your stakeholders. Yeah. So what do you say to a leader who may say that, look, burnout is bullshit,
2: <laughs> oh, and we
1: had a fantastic leader say just that and I heard um, a, a fabulous fundraiser also say that to me in an interview and what she meant by it um and this was just from a personal point of view was that she stays connected with the causes it's not just about raising the money and the numbers but she's working on women's rights so she sees the result of the great work of the organization and that keeps her inspired right
2: and so Nancy Lublin who uh just for success, do something. Uh, crisis text line. She said in an interview, "Oh, burnout is bullshit." And I said, "Well, tell me why." But <laughs> tell me she more. she correlates get out? <laughs> she correlates <laughs> no burnout with being unhappy with your job, being dissatisfied with your position, and so she will go the extra mile to make sure that people are either content and happy with their job or she gives them a very nice cushion to allow them to look for something else. Because if the culture isn't a fit, if the place isn't right for you, then you'll be bringing negative energy to the space. And why have that in your life? So she's just like, eh, just cut it off. Just don't even do it. So I think it's great. A lot of the things in our book is about preventative It's not about waiting until you absolutely burn out and your hair is falling out. You have a heart attack until you start to do something. It's wait. It's not wait. It's start now. It's start now when things aren't at the end of your rope And take care of yourself so you have the strength and the wherewithal to keep doing the good work.
1: And I think um, I'm thinking, reflecting on Nancy as well, I think that in addition, when she says burnout is bullshit, there's also, I think in a lot of nonprofits, part of the reason they burn out is that maybe leaders underestimate the collective capacity, or leaders are unable to say no to funders, or they're unable to prioritize programs, so like everything becomes important. And I think Nancy, not only is she a great leader, but she's also a terrific manager too. And and she knows around setting boundaries around programs and what's most important to take on. So having that along with the culture, I think creates, you know, of course she's gonna say burnout is bullshit.
0: Yeah, you can easily misconstrue some of that, but we're talking about the idea of leaders, and we have many leaders that have nonprofits that listen to, to this podcast, and you know, you're know, you thinking to yourself, all right, sure, look, I've got a vacation policy. I've got you know the health care is in place and some extra little bumps here. Like I've checked the boxes. HR told me I'm fine. It seems like you're giving me a whole new to-do sheet. So the we care element, what is the leader's role in this? It's well, very- it's not
2: about checking boxes, first of all. Because that in and of itself, uh, Beth uses the example that the leader may say, everyone take a break, three hours a month must be taken for personal time. But if the leader is not exhibiting that, if the leader is not modeling that and taking that same break that they're telling everyone else they should, then people will not follow suit. People follow the leader, and if the leader is eating the donuts, if the leader is sitting at the desk for nine hours straight, or sending emails or at not 3 taking their vacations. or <laughs> not taking their vacations, then people think that's the culture. It becomes this unspoken, embedded culture. So it's not just about the boxes being checked. It's about the environment. It's about the behavior. The behavior. And modeling the right behavior. Because
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the leader's behavior is contagious. Yeah.
0: So it starts with the just to turn it into the process, the, the self-care of the leader to the then the culture-driven of the we-care. Yes,
1: but it, not only... It's, it's sort of a both-in. It's also leadership modeling, leadership behavior, endorsing it. I mean, we... In the book, we interviewed many different leaders and their employees, and we found out that there were kind of three profiles of leaders and nonprofits. So, the first one is they endorse this whole notion of self care and we care, and they model it and they practice it. There's some that just give it lip service, um, but it's okay, and maybe that's where things kind of don't happen. And then the, the third kind, which is a little bit more toxic, is where people are ridiculed for it, and it's just not. You know, it's just not part of the culture. It's finally ingrained. And then I guess there was a fourth one, too, and that's a leader that is enthusiastic about self-care, practices it, but they're imposing what their notion is of self-care. Like, everybody's going to do yoga at 3 o'clock on Tuesdays. After
0: their fourth kale drink. Yes, after the fourth kale drink. But
1: <laughs> self-care really has to be customized, so there needs to be an employee engagement component to it. Mm-hmm. so let's talk about
0: some of the the metrics I could expect to see behind it and just just to be weird about it do I get fewer sick days will people actually quietly work harder if I make them healthier like what sort of things have you seen as a result and and how does this actually get back to like solving the mission I love happy healthy people but if I were able to accomplish my mm-hmm. mission with, you know, not so, healthy. Right. not so healthy people, but I got it done twice as fast. Just to, right. let me be frank about it. <laughs> you work it? Well. I'm going to work <laughs> you to death for two years. And then out you go. Here comes the crop. Uh-huh. And by the way, there's many models in Silicon Valley right now. Companies that take young talent in, mm-hmm. grind them up for two years mm-hmm. and spit them out. Yes, when exactly. Done. And they yes. get a lot of stuff done. Aren't we told to be like the for-profits? They scale. They do so well.
1: How do we reconcile Well, actually some of those nonprofits that are in Silicon Valley having a base there actually are really focused on creating these cultures of wellness, like at at Google, um, for example. But to answer your question about data, so we'll talk about it in data terms. So there's some really good hard data and some a little bit more softer, um, but let's deal with the hard data, yes. If you have a healthy and happy workforce, there's gonna be fewer sick days, which is gonna cost you less. You're gonna have a reduction of healthcare cost. There's gonna be less, um, if the morale is up, uh, there'll be less turnover, and when new people come into a job, it takes them a while to learn the job, and there's a kind of loss in productivity. Um, If you build a reputation, a brand, if you will, as a great place to work, you're going to attract some of that top younger talent that's out there that is looking for organizations that have these kinds of cultures to work for.
2: We did a lot of reading of the reports and the studies and their medical science, uh, working more than 50 hours a week ends up costing you a lot in productivity. Your productivity drops significantly. So somebody who works 70 hours is no more productive than somebody working 50. So there's all this lost time. There are so many studies now that are out there that really support the idea of working better, working in a more healthful way and getting a lot of payback for it, a lot of positive payback.
1: I mean, I was thinking of the Time Off project, which studies the um, impact (laughs) of taking vacations on employee productivity. And employees that actually take their 10 days or whatever it is um, are actually um, more productive. Um, and that's better for the, bot- for the bottom line, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I'm also thinking if you're really interested in a good data set, and they let us play with some of it, um, is the Kaiser Foundation Healthcare um, does track this and they track um, uh, what types of programs that different corporations are doing to support employee health and wellness and then what the impact is on the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So do you
0: have, I mean, you pull up a lot of examples and case studies, which is fantastic. I really love that part where you're talking to leaders. What are some of the standout case studies? Anyone who went from like over this period of time, like a zero to 60 transformation, um, the differences, because it's one thing to jump into an organization that's already doing it. Yes.
1: What are the hiccups? What are the
0: difficulties yeah. in going from like that zero to one?
1: You my favorite story is, um, it's actually a, another su- suicide prevention line. And it's um, an agency, fairly large agency that's in um, Arizona. And not using text, using the phone. And so it was a quasi-government agency and the, it had a culture of fear. So it's one of those nonprofits where you only saw senior management escorting someone to the door when they were being fired. Okay, so they hired this um, uh, a, a younger executive director named Justin, and he came in and he, you know, I was thinking oh, I want to make some changes here. <laughs> and one of the first things he sort of looked into was, well, wow, this is a really stressful job doing suicide prevention and people losing somebody, um, but. But people aren't going to the gym, or we have all these, you know, wellness benefits, and they're not taking advantage of it. So he started. He did a bit of a listening tour, and one of the things he heard was, um, "Well, we don't go to the gym because we have to leave the building; it's not convenient." And He kind of asked, "You know, what is it that would, um, that could help you? You know, help you with uh, fitness? You know, wh- what would you use?" And they said, "Well, what we, we really want is a place to let off some steam, like." A room that had punching bags in them. (laughs) So he appointed an employee uh, engagement committee and they redesigned one of the conference rooms and picked out punching bags (laughs) to hang in the conference room and their health insurance coverage um, paid for it and now if they want to let off steam they go into the room and do punching bags.
0: And then they obviously drew pictures of the senior staff on oh, the, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. no, not the not former senior staff. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: another example was they also had a quiet room, okay, to go in case they did lose somebody. But no one was using it. Why? Because it was a room with a bunch of fluorescent lights and the walls were painted white. And because it was in Arizona, they had giant photographs of cactus with thorns. Is that soothing? <laughs> So again, he appointed, um, he got a, a group of employees, employee engagement group that, you know, redesign the um, meditation room, earth tones on the walls, comforting art, music, and now they use it. So that's, it's kind of uh, asking, asking questions. You know, yeah. what is it like to work here? I mean it's
0: it's setting it's setting a goal, it's putting it on your, you know, sort of field of view and if you focus on a thing and if you measure that thing, it will it will improve. If you think it's done once you've I I won't use that, you know, the check the box word. Or if it's all you don't check boxes. But as you bring it into focus, yeah. The ideas will come up. As you listen to what you're looking for and what's needed from your staff, it sounds like as a leader you can you can move toward that. I I'm curious also now because one staff doesn't fit all. There's a lot of generational differences, I think, between millennials and boomers, people newly entering the workforce, ready to just like work until they get grounded in the ground and they're rather like how do you think about the approach a leader should take or a we care should take generationally speaking?
2: Well, I think that one of the biggest things that we suggest and that we've seen that other organizations have been very successful at is the listening part, is the engaging the employees and have representation from different generational segments, different departments, if you will, different stakeholders to come in and truly be part of the team that surveys the rest of the staff, that sees what is needed. And all of that, those little subtleties will bubble up to the surface and then pay attention to them and come together collectively to think of solutions, to think of activities and changes that can be made. Uh, We have in the book these assessments in chapter three, which are meant for the individual, but so many of the organizations can pull those now and use them collectively, making their collective self-care plans, making individual self-care plans together. And respecting the fact that there are these differences, uh, Beth had mentioned the leader that comes in and says yoga. It's not for everyone,
1: not, and not everyone would even be capable right. of it. I think I think what we're really talking about on a high level is um, a manage a leadership style, um, and it kind of folds out generationally, not all the time. But we're talking about the difference between participatory leadership. And kind of top down command and control leadership. So it has to be, I think, to promote a culture of well being, I think it uh the leadership style has to be participatory. You have to get people's feedback and input in designing whatever program it is.
0: Yeah, we get a probably a long whole other podcast on command <laughs> and control versus participatory <laughs> leadership yes. and the generational bias, I think, <laughs> one well, versus the other, potentially. Well,
1: exactly. And I know in my first book, The Network Nonprofit, when we we called it networked mindset and networked leadership, which is a participatory leadership model Mm -hmm. so so yeah it goes in line with that so in
0: this getting into that assessment idea right i'm a leader i'm listening to this right now and i'm like oh no is Mm -hmm. there a fire in the kitchen no Mm -hmm. what is going on and i like it because you've defined these sort of four steps that you go through when you first start you're passion driven Mm -hmm. you move into the passion waning start to fade passion challenged crisis and then ultimately passion depleted Right. As a leader, how do I, what are the signs I'm looking for? How do I tell, like, because right now, if I were to walk back in the whole whale office, as happy mm-hmm. as they seem, every now and then, there's just, I'm like, uh-oh. Right. <laughs>
1: are they, like,
0: about to quit because they're about to break? And right. the answer right. they yeah. tell me is absolutely. They're always, right. like, every, if you walk right now back into whatever group right. of humans you are working with, right. how am I looking right. at this? How do I
1: gauge this? Right. Well, I mean... You know, obviously, <laughs> I mean, uh, the assessments are a good tool to help educate around the symptoms of, uh, of burnout, but they kind of break down into a couple of buckets. There's the physical symptoms, unexplained aches and pains, insomnia, um, just not feeling well, getting sick. Then there's kind of um, the emotional pieces, which is, you know, this feeling of hopelessness, irritability, um, angriness, um, a kind of loss of um Loss of, like, direction, motivation. motivation, loss of productivity, um, you know, are some of the, the warning signs. And what's so nice about um, the assessment, the nonprofit passion fatigue assessment, it helps, you know, and again, we're not doctors, and we don't play them on TV at all, um, although I'm a daughter of a doctor, so maybe <laughs> I get a whole pass a bit, but um, so, so it helps educate one about what their symptoms are, so you can begin to understand, hey, I, you know, I, maybe I'm burning out. Uh, Maybe I need to take this a little bit more seriously in terms of practicing self-care. And I think a lot of us take
2: these symptoms as, oh, you know, that's just because last night I didn't get enough sleep. Or, oh, that's just because I had a bad day at the office. So we don't look at them collectively and we don't realize they stack one on top of the other and then get to a tipping point where that burnout happens. So the idea is each time one of these shows up, Treat it as a red flag, re-examine, reassess, and figure out what can you do differently? What can you do for yourself to fortify yourself, fortify yourself against that? The more you do now when things are horrible, the better you're going to be when things get tense.
1: Right. And I mean, from an organizational perspective, speaking to a leader, you know, someone who is the executive director of a nonprofit, one way to apply this might be, and I've done this as a consultant coming into an organization that wants to think about, you know, happy, healthy, and well-being in the workplace is to maybe allocate some time at a staff meeting or a two-hour staff retreat and um, ask the staff to take the burnout assessment and to have an honest conversation. Maybe you might need an outside facilitator, maybe not, about what are you know, what are the stressors and what are the reactions um, to stress. And then there's another instrument in, the, in Chapter 3 of the book called the self-care inventory. And that breaks down along the different categories that we mentioned. And it gives people all these different ideas around um, habits and um, ways that they can practice self-care. And then from that conversation, it's an easy kind of move into a discussion around what are some of the the benefits that we should have—should we have workplace flexibility? It, do we want to start? Um, do we want to give employees Fitbits and start encouraging taking um, walks during lunchtime? Do we want to start with walking meetings, or do we want to give people standing desks? But it's not just giving them those things; it's really going through that process to understand what, where's their consensus, where is their interest, and then supporting that.
0: Yeah, I like your sort of notes about look. We're not doctors, and also there's not one size fits all. Exactly. There's no. I was joking about the four kales,
1: but that's kind of. (laughs) That's what what you like, right? (laughs) That's
0: what everybody wants. I want the switch to flip to make it better. What do I do to just make it work? And what you're saying is, it's a process. Exactly. You have to listen, and it's not like oh, finally, if you do every meeting, walking meetings. Oh, great! And you roll it out, and
1: you're. Or here's another one. Um, If you go up to the CDC, they have a work place wellness or well-being kit. And you can download these signs and, uh, that you can put by the elevator that say, take the stairs. But if your stairs are filled with rats and cockroaches, nobody's gonna take the right. stairs. So, so beware of the quick fix. And we say that several times in the book.
0: Yeah, I like that. So I will avoid the question of tips. Uh, what perfect tip <laughs> do you have? Uh, Cause I had a feeling that was the direction. And it's interesting because I think, you know, when we talk about the, the wellness and the depletion, it really gave me a sense of like a battery. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're so used to looking at our cell phones and being like, it's a part of, like, it's an appendage. You know? I mean, yeah. It's running out of juice. I'm running out of juice. But that's what vacation's for. That's what power plugs are for. can I just go on a giant vacation every, you know, five months and then rejuvenate, go from depleted back to driven? What is your thought about the, the vacation and that type of mindset? Like, I'm going to work, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel and then I'll be fine.
2: Well, most people mm-hmm. who think that that vacation's the light at the end of the tunnel end up not taking the vacation. Yeah. Because, it, because suddenly something else has come up. So they're, they're not actually prioritizing. And then many people who take a vacation don't actually disconnect, don't actually unplug or give themselves a time To breathe
1: or the executive director that's packing her bag for vacation and then her work pile (laughs) to take on vacation to take on vacation so
2: it's so it's a little bit of a misnomer but also that's not sustainable because it erodes your health it erodes your mental health and your physical health when you're allowing yourself to deplete all the way down to empty and then think that a vacation is going to then rejuvenate you it's just it's a temporary fix it's a band-aid Why not work in more sustainable ways? Why not have a work environment that offers more sustainability for self-care, for that energy, so that you don't reach your lowest point and then expect something as simple as a vacation to reset you?
1: So from an organizational point of view, um, organizational culture point of view, in many employee handbooks they have, we offer two weeks of vacation or 10 days of vacation, paid vacation or whatever it is. Some offer more. And what happens is, in some cultures, they don't track it, and um, and so people or the boss doesn't go on vacation, and so that's kind of sending that signal that we don't we work we work all the time, but in one organization, donors choose that we profile in the book, they have a great process where they do track whether or not um, employees are taking their vacations. And they have a human, I guess, resources team, but they're called the talent team, which I love. And what they do is um, they might track one team. They might notice, oh, there's this person here who hasn't taken their vacation. So they'll talk to that person's manager, and then that person will encourage their employee, look, you know, you need to take your vacation. So as opposed to human resources coming in and saying it, as opposed to nobody tracking it, and then it, it, it happens. So I think... It's that paying attention and really caring <laughs> about your people, not just having it written in the handbook. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean those are good metrics to look at and also from personal experience with Whole Whale rolled out unlimited vacation at first and I was like, Oh, problem solved. Everyone's gonna take a reasonable amount of vacation. I started tracking, and I was like, Oh no. They're not they literally just stopped taking the vacation altogether. Right. They didn't think of it as like a that's, resource. That's they the under- project interest. type office
1: found that. It's, it's so in- now
0: we've rolled out a, a minimum number. You have to, at a minimum or I'll just kick you out of the office, you know, lock the door, throw away the keys. Um, But beyond that, you know, quarterly looking at it and trying to schedule it out. And I'm proud to say I set a very positive example. (laughs) I am the league leader in vacation leading. So I'm like, you make me feel good about myself. Right.
1: (laughs) And also I bet you do, like you schedule your vacation far in advance and you block that out and you probably on your way leaving for vacation, you've probably set up and told people I'm going to be on vacation. I'm not going to be reachable and set it so that you know I've set these boundaries
0: I've also thought of it as a test for the leader right a leader are you making yourself obsolete in the critical systems of this organization or have you built yourself into every process such as like the you know mission control manage control of every single yeah, right. point in the process are you critical because you designed yourself as such and it's a test as I like can I go a on a trip test. with my wife
2: <laughs> see that's a really great t- test and I think that if leaders are more people focused, if leaders are also given the kind of training that they need to be more of this kind of aware leader and this kind of sensitive leader to these kinds of issues, I think that is an important piece of it. So many leaders are losing their development training funds and this is a critical area of development for leaders that help them help themselves, and help them help their staff, and in turn, help the mission.
0: Yeah. Of course, getting back to the whole point of why we're talking about this, a well-functioning team is going to perform better. Look yes. at this in sports. Why mm-hmm. is it such a disconnect? Look how much they spend on the physical therapy and the gyms and the like, cold bass. And the, like, they need high-performing players. Yeah. As we begin to move... To the the lightning round, the rapid fire round. I'm uh, I want to touch on the technology component because I think you know this sort of sixth this like sixth sense of you know we're attached to our cell phone at this point uh, breeds some wildly unhealthy behavior. What are some of the things you found in terms of approaching uh, approaching the the cell phone?
2: Well, the, the story that I tell pretty often is. I was in the grocery store going up and down the aisles and started dropping things as I took them off the shelf. And I got to the checkout counter, I'm dropping things and I was getting really worried, thinking there's something wrong with my brain. And I went to pay and I'm dropping things, I dropped the credit card. I couldn't figure out what was going on and then I looked at my hand and I had my iPhone in my hand the entire time, completely unaware. And that's what began getting me thinking about the mindlessness of our relationship with our tech. It's not even that the tech is bad, it's that we have become so overly dependent.
1: and Addicted?
2: Oh, don't use that word, but yeah, it is. It it has gotten to that stage. And I was the one 10, 15 years ago who said, addiction, no, of course not. And now it takes a lot of awareness and a lot of self-control to not constantly reach for that iPhone or that device, to not constantly have it with me wherever I go, and to turn it off, the phone is actually sitting in front of me at this moment, completely power it off, and that causes a little momentary panic, and I, I'm not alone, so many people do that, and what happens is it then becomes a critical piece of work, it's our tool for work, and we're checking our work emails, and we're getting texts no from the boundaries. boss. boundaries. Zero <laughs> boundaries. And so without awareness, without developing a better relationship with your technology, without setting some scheduled time to unplug, without truly disconnecting so you can actually physically be right. connected and pay attention to either your work or the people right in front of you, Without any of that, you end up with an imbalance and it hurts you physically, it hurts you mentally, it hurts you
1: emotionally. So like I've been doing a lot of workshops, uh, five or six years ago, even like ten years ago, it was called. First, it was called information coping skills, and that was dealing with the information overload. And then when I was doing social media, it was social media mindfulness, and now a little bit of tech wellness. And I have like this pop quiz, and one of the questions is: Is the only time you're not on your iPhone is when you're sleeping? Yes or no? And and that's kind of like I mean it's a joke, but it's kind of some of us used to. I was very guilty of that. You, I used my iPhone as a alarm clock. But I had no self-control, not to look at Facebook, not to look at CNN, not to check email before going to sleep. And then the alarm goes off. And what's the first thing you do? You roll over, grab your phone, and you're looking at your emails. And that's not a great way to start your day. And so I kicked the iPhone out of my bedroom. I let the husband stay. iPhone out. And I've reinvented my bedtime and my morning routines. And I I feel a lot better, less frazzled from sort of collaborative overload and echo chamber and constant breaking news and stress
0: i'm glad speaking as a husband that the husband won i I won't put my wife to that test because you know i just don't want to see the result Uh, (laughs) though we do have a comfortable couch all right we're moving on to our quick rapid fire questions for you okay Okay. so maybe i'll direct one versus the other Um, popcorn questions popcorn questions okay So uh, what is something that you're really excited about coming in the next year?
2: So I'm actually looking into the emerging legal cannabis industry, and I'm looking particularly at well-being and women.
0: Well-being, women, and weed. Exactly. There you go. You said it. That's awesome. Um, You were not expecting that. (laughs) No, I wasn't. I wasn't. But that's why I asked the question. Talk about a mistake that you have made in a professional sense that has shaped the way you do business. (laughs)
1: <laughs> there's so many mistakes that I <laughs> I don't know which one I should fess up I was all prepared to answer them. what are you excited about question <laughs> um, one of the things that I a professional mistake that I have made is that and, and, and partly kind of led to the thinking behind the book and I I I'm getting better at it. I wouldn't say 100% mastered it, but um, being a social change activist and being um, someone who's raised all this money for causes in Cambodia, literally, and, and and also in the end wanting to help people, is that you? I've not like set boundaries enough around um, my giving. Okay. And so according to Adam Grant, there are, you know, givers, takers, and matchers. If you've heard this, um, takers just take, 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 take. Okay. They won't give anything in return. Matchers will give you something. Um, but they'll, uh, but as long as, uh, the, you've given something to them in return and there are givers, people who are always giving, but you have to be strategic in being a giver. And so that you don't just give to everybody and say yes to everybody, but that you're being a little bit strategic and putting some boundaries around your giving. So as an activist, (laughs) a philanthropist, and someone who cares deeply about this sector, I've learned over the years to be a little bit more strategic in the way that I give.
0: If you could jump in a hot tub time machine and go back to the beginning of writing this book, what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give yourself?
2: Don't burn out from listening to everyone's stories about burning out. <laughs> take, take better care of yourself and follow your own advice sooner because uh, I would be a lot less painful.
0: <laughs> practice what you preach before you preach it. Yes. Well, and we then did, practice.
1: Well, you know, in writing the book, we did we were our own guinea pigs. Yes. We tested so, things out. Right. In fact, a practice right now I'm still doing is Zentangles, which is meditative drawing. <laughs> A zentangle a day.
2: Yeah, meditative art. Yeah, we did. We tried a lot of these techniques, and they helped. The sleep piece of it, we didn't even mention that. The sleep piece of it is incredibly important. That if you had to pick only one thing that you do is to get better sleep. And we both paid attention to our sleep, and we were able to get better sleep. And when, and when we don't, we feel it. We know it.
0: Uh, Beth, it seemed like you perked up when I talked about the thing you were most excited about. Let me give you a quick (laughs) shot. What is the the thing you're most excited about in the coming year?
1: Um, I'm working on a project with the Packard Foundation. Um, It's called the Nonprofit Emerging Leaders Playbook, um, which we released in year one as a PDF. and and it was a peer learning group for Packard uh, grantees. And so year two, we're gonna have an interactive site. It will not only have the content, but it will also have uh, ways that young leaders um, can facilitate processes in their organizations for culture change and for their own leadership development. So I'm knee deep in writing facilitation plans. You know, I'm a big fan of sticky notes. I'm a facilitation geek. So this has been very exciting and I can't wait till it uh, launches. What is something you
0: think you or your organization should stop doing?
1: To stop doing? Stop
0: doing.
2: Hmm, I think that uh, me, for, for I should stop re- over-relying on my technology still. I think that I do tend to pay some lip service. I'm always very honest about the fact that I fail often at keeping my technology at bay. But I built a whole business around technology, and I use it as my excuse. And I think that because I have a digital marketing consultancy, it's easy for me to say, I'm on the computer because I'm working. I'm on the phone because I'm working. It's my job. And I think that that's a mistake. So I need to get better at not doing that.
1: Um, I would say um, that we have to, especially in the last couple weeks, um I'm, and I'll just say, especially in the last couple weeks now, it's now February 8th, but between the last couple weeks, between January 20th and today, I think we have to stop being constantly outraged and in this whole cycle of outreach, because this is producing stress and that we have to really understand that we have to find a place of inner strength and collective strength, um, as someone said, within the eye of the hurricane. And we really need to really look at um, ways that we can practice self-care and we care because it's really going to bolster us for whatever lies ahead. Lies. Ahead. Lies, lies. ahead. As in, alternative. Alternative. Lies. As in, and that's a fact. A- alternative. An alternative, An alternative that fact. is that Right. Actually, you're probably right. frustrated. Right, and it. I or don't have comments. a bathrobe.
0: Oh. <laughs> can nonprofits <laughs> successfully go out of business? Yes. Yes. Two <laughs> <laughs> so yeses. The yes. yeses it. Um, perfect. Um, if you had a Harry Potter style wand that you could wave across our industry, the nonprofit sector, what would it do?
1: Beth. What would it would do? It would provide staples for everybody's <laughs> offices so we would feel like we the scarcity mindset of that we don't have um, resources. Now, I'm sort of halfway joking, but what I would do is, with the one would grant two wishes. First would be the resources, and the second would be- No, you get one. One, Okay. okay. resources. Resources, Just- resources in a little box that comes with um, the ability also to use them strategically and wisely.
0: That's quite a box.
2: (laughs) I would remove guilt because I think that those of us who do good things and want to do good things also have the flip side that we always feel super guilty if we don't do the perfect job, if we don't help that extra person. And living in that kind of cycle of guilt makes it much harder to focus on what you're doing, to be proud of what you're doing, to recognize your self-worth. All of those things will fuel you to do an even better job, but just
1: don't feel guilty.
0: Awesome. All right. Final question. How do people <laughs> find you? How do people help you?
1: So you you can find each of us at our sites, and I'm at www.bethcantor.org or at Cantor on Twitter.
2: And Aliza Sherman, A-L-I-Z-A Sherman.com or at Aliza Sherman on Twitter and Instagram. And everywhere else. <laughs> and how can people help us? Start the conversation. Start the conversation, even if you're not at a nonprofit, but if you are or if you support a nonprofit, go in and start the conversation about self-care and about we care. That to us is the goal of the book, to begin those conversations. That's where it all starts
1: and it doesn't end there because then it's just talking we want to get to action uh, as well so um, as you discuss this or maybe as you're thinking about it and reflecting about it as an individual think about one small change that you can make um, in your own practice or in your organization's practice uh, that can lead to um, improved um, well-being and uh, fortifying that uh, resilience muscle Thank you so much for
0: taking the time to share your wisdom in this book with the sector. We'll have the resources, of course, in our podcast, but thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming back to why we want to work on the culture of health within an organization is important because we're talking about the not-for-profit sector, and this sector and the people that work in it are without a doubt, passion-driven, impact-focused, people that really give everything they have. It is also, I, I tend to find, it is a crowd that attracts people that are more empathetic, people that are able to see through the lens of others and, and then feel that. Now, what's unique to this sector is that when you are empathetic and when you are able to, you know, walk a mile in another's shoes and, and see what that feels like, you're also, more often than not, adopting that stress, saying that if I had another hour to give, I'd give it all. And the the focus on working until you can't, you know, lift your head anymore is very real when you think about the amount of work that needs to be done. And So issues of pacing and how to make sure, you know, actually your health comes first, is a tough thing sometimes, I think, for, for people in the nonprofit sector, and I love, love, love that you know, Beth and Lisa are out there uh, sh- uh, sharing this message and helping leaders, um, really, and help, that's one of the things I took away, helping leaders realize that it is another area of their organization that, that you know what, you need to uh, keep an eye on uh, and make sure that you're driving toward, uh, and it's not this uh, nice, not necessary, it is something that potentially is core to succeeding in your mission over time. That's all I have for you today. As always, you can find the resources from this at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Lucky episode number 64. Thanks for joining us. Today's delightful music brought to you by the one and only Greg Thomas. Check him out online. Greg Thomas Music. Also, thank you to our editor, Brian. Uh, Well done, friend. Thanks for helping put this all together. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.